Thank you very much. We do love coming to this church. It's great to see you all. How are you doing this morning? Good. It's really nice to be here. I said this morning, and my wife teased me, I said, if we weren't in our own church, this is the church we'd come to. And then she said... I said, you say that everywhere we go. (laughs) Which is really insincere. We love being amongst you. We love what God's doing in this community. So thank you for the privilege of being here. Uh, We're going to take our Bibles out and flip to the book of Colossians. Um, I say flip if you've got a paper version. If you've got your phone, then pull your phone out. Uh, And we're going to look at our Bibles on our phones or on our paper Bibles. We're going to look at Colossians chapter 1. And Rosie's going to read a few verses there. And then we're going to have a chance to look at this whole question of our identity and our destiny. Understanding who we are and knowing God's purpose for our lives. So we're going to look at Colossians uh, chapter 1 and verses 1 to 4. And then I'm going to read from 9 to 14. Um, So let's look at this together. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. That's who's writing. To God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all of God's people. And then jumping down to verse 9. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Thanks, Rosie. Uh, I was shopping a little while ago, about this time of year, a few years ago, and just done some shopping and uh, getting in my car, reversing out of the car parking space, and out of nowhere, a bollard decided to attack my car. Anybody had that happen where you crunch something? I was reversing, spinning, and thinking, what just happened? Got this almighty crunch, and it hit the, uh, the passenger side wheel, and then from that point onwards, my little Mondeo was never quite the same again. Whenever I drove it, it gradually would pull over to the left-hand side, and it had a problem with the alignment or the tracking. It wasn't running straight. Now, if ever you want to test, if you're a driver, if ever you want to test your car, if you're driving along, you can take your hands off the wheel for a few seconds and see if it runs straight or see if your car pulls to the left or the right. Don't do it for extended periods of time, but, um, but, that, but often cars can have a problem. They're not quite running straight and it can cause all sorts of damage to the tyres. Well, Paul was a bit like a mechanic. He could spot what was going on in a church if it was running straight or on the right path or if it was a little bit pulling to the left or pulling to the right. Sometimes what happens in our thinking is we're not thinking the way that God wants us thinking. We're pulling off in a different direction. We're going to the left or the right. And God wants our thinking on track. And this book is about thinking about ourselves the right way and thinking about our future and purpose the right way. Paul starts off by saying, I know who I am. I know my identity. I know what I'm for. And I'm living in that identity. And it gives me a real freedom. He starts off in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to Timothy Uh, And Timothy, our brother. So he's saying, listen, I know my identity. I'm Paul and an apostle. 
and I know my purpose. I'm here to speak into the life of the church. It's as if he's saying, I know who I am, I know what I'm for, and I want that for you as a community. Here's a community that's not thinking about themselves quite the right way, and because of that, they're not living in the purpose that God has for them. I don't know how you think about yourself. I don't know how you're living right now, but God wants you thinking thoughts in your head that he has about you, and not what culture says about you, or even from your own background and upbringing. So we see in this passage that verse 2, it says, To the saints and to the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Do you know, your identity determines your destiny. When you know who you are, that determines the things that you might do with your life. I just loved reflecting on the story that Stephen Tammy said that many years ago, they realized that God was calling them to do something. We took a risk, let them go and plant a church, which sounds very grand, but actually it was just a few friends getting together, starting a group, and a few more friends joined, and it developed from there. And actually knowing who we are, knowing that we're sons and daughters, that we're loved by him, gives us confidence to step into the things that God's calling us to do in our lives. And actually that's what Paul is saying to this church. I want you to get it. I'm securing who I am, Paul is saying. I'm an apostle. I'm called to do this by the will of Jesus. I've not just decided to do it as a day job. God's called me to do it. And I want you to know that you're saints, you're holy ones. So there are three things we see here in our identity. Click to the next slide. That we're saints, not sinners. That it's come to us from the gospel. And that it's received and not achieved. Let's look at those one by one. About a few hundred times in the Bible, it refers to us as uh, it refers to people as being sinners. And how many of you heard the phrase that we're sinners saved by grace? Well, it's a nice phrase, but it's not in the Bible. We're, we are not described as sinners. You're described as a saint. If you've made the decision to step over that line of commitment and follow Jesus, then you're described as a saint. You're described as a holy one. Now, I don't know what your background is. Maybe you've had a traditional background, maybe a Catholic background or a church background. And when you think of saint, you think of St. Francis or an icon on the wall or something very spiritual. I don't know if that's what's the the image that comes to mind. But um, the Bible says that if you follow Jesus and you've been welcomed into God's family, you are a saint. So what I'd like you to do for a minute, all of you in the room, I'd like you to turn to the person next to you and just introduce yourself, whatever your first name is. If I was saying hi, I'd say, hi, my name's St. Andrew. So just turn to the person, put in, insert your name and say to the person next to you, hello, my name's St. <clears throat> How does that feel? Feel a bit strange? <laughs> Some of you are quite liking this, I can tell. Now, you might not put that on your status update on Facebook this afternoon. Just go in there. And you might not print it on your business card, but you do need that imprinted on your heart and on your mind that I'm a saint. You need God's definition of your life imprinted in how you do life. That's what we're invited to do. Has anybody actually ever been uh, the victim of identity theft? Click on to the next one. Have you ever, ever had your credit card cloned and someone's started shopping on Amazon? They've managed to kind of do that identity theft thing on you. Nobody in the room? One of you. It's not very nice when somebody starts clicking away and purchasing lots of stuff from random places and it's on your credit card. That can happen if identity theft takes place. It's a big issue, one of the main spaces of crime. Well, actually, identity theft isn't just contained to the realm of cyber criminals and people shopping on Amazon on your credit card. It can actually happen in our hearts, in our heads, in our lives, and in us following Jesus. In other words, the, the true identity that God's given us can get undermined by the enemy 
Your identity as a son, as a daughter in God's family, your identity as a saint, as a holy one, is not just left without being contended by the enemy of your soul. Sometimes you can walk into a room and you can sit there and in the realm of the feelings or thoughts that we have, that's how identity theft can take place. In other words, you know, you feel in your heart, I can't make a difference. I don't belong here. Or I'm all alone. Or maybe you feel, if they really knew what I was like, they wouldn't accept me. Or I don't think God's hearing my prayers like he's hearing their prayers. All these little things, these lies, these feelings come in. And the, the goal of the enemy is to try and undermine our sense of belonging in God's family or our sense of value and purpose in God's world. And it happens quite often. You can accept those undermining voices that come in your head or your heart. And it's the enemy's agenda to try and steal your identity, to kind of do a bit of identity theft on you. Bill Johnson puts it this way, doesn't it honor him more, doesn't it honor God more when we agree with him? Isn't it a greater form of humility to believe him when he says we're precious, even when we don't feel very precious? So humility is coming into agreement with God. When God says something about you, even if it feels strange to say, hi, my name's St. Andrew, or whatever you said, it feels a bit weird and awkward, but actually that's who God says you are. I am who you say I am, as we sang earlier. And it's important that we recognize humility is not um, kind of having a, a wrong view of ourselves. It's coming into alignment and truth with who God says we are and living in that identity. And that's what this passage is about. He's saying, I want you to get who you are and when you get who you are, it'll help how you live. It'll help you live out the calling and the purpose that I've got for you. So he says, to the saints, to the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul uses that phrase, in Christ, loads of times. We know that when we, come, when we come to follow Jesus Christ, lives in us and he's in our hearts. But actually, it's used about 170 times that you are actually, if you're following Jesus, in Christ. That's your first identity. He says, to the saints in Christ, then in Colossae. So your primary identity is not where you live or your postcode or your family of origin. Your primary identity becomes your inclusion in God's family. So the first thing is we say that we are saints, not sinners. And that identity comes to us via the gospel. That's the next thing we see in this passage. Uh, we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints, verse 4. So our new identity that we get given if we're following Christ is a byproduct of faith in Jesus. It's not because of effort. It's not because we pray hard or come to church a lot. It's a gift that we receive when we receive Jesus. And the next thing we see that that identity that we have is received and it's not achieved. It's given and it's not earned. A bit later on in the passage in this section of the Bible, it says he's rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So our identity as followers of Christ, as sons and daughters, as saints, is not something that we've earned by effort. It's something we've received and not achieved. Do you know, any achieved identity is really based on the stuff that you do. If you're top performer in your sales company or top of the class or you get good grades, they're all achieved-based identities. And they're okay, but that can go a couple of ways. It can either go towards pride or despair. If your identity is based on being the popular one, the smart one, the good-looking one, the successful one, then while you're on top of the game, great. But while you're not, you can feel a sense of despair. While you're feeling great about yourself, you can be proud. And when you're not quite reaching the mark, you can feel pretty crushed. And actually, what we do in those moments, if our identity is based on performance, we put ourselves in a mental pecking order with those in the room. Am I better or worse than them? We're comparing all the time. Do you know, if you don't get your identity from something more 
permanent and more stable than that, then it leads to instability. Our relationship with God is meant to be the thing that defines us at the core. So our identity is received from God and not achieved. And that shifts some stuff in our hearts because if you didn't earn it, then you can't lose it. If it came as a gift, then you can't boast in it. And what it produces when we really get who we are before God is it produces in our hearts a humble, confident hope. So the basis of our identity as sons and daughters and saints and holy ones is on Christ's performance and not my performance. And that's very freeing. There's a chap called Glenn Harrison who was the professor of psychology at Bristol University. And he wrote an excellent book called The Big Ego Trip. He writes extensively on self-esteem, worth, identity, value. That was his area of research for 30 years in his academic world. And he put this, uh, put this really clearly. He said, you know, the self-esteem movement would say that the question of worth and value and identity can somehow be uncoupled or disconnected from the question of worldview, but it simply can't. In other words, if you're trying to settle in your heart who I am, what I'm for, uh, you know, my sense of value, my purpose, my worth, if you try and wrestle those questions disconnected from any conversations about God, then it just doesn't work. Because if you, if you try and think this stuff without recognizing how do I view the world and my place in the world, he's saying actually there are some ways that the self-esteem therapy movement tries to deal with people that actually are quite flawed. And he's saying that, not lobbing in a, an opinion as a preacher, with his 30 years of academic research in his field. And he goes on to say this, that there was, a, there was a study that was done by the University of Ontario, Waterloo University in Ontario, and they had two groups of people. One group of people with average self-esteem, felt okay about life, felt okay about themselves. And there's a group over here who've got slightly lower self-esteem. And they wanted to do a control research. And they said, okay, we want you to, for a couple of weeks, uh, for both groups, to say to yourself, I'm a lovable person, I'm amazing, you know, I'm a smart person. You know, just some of those self-help kind of phrases that you say, just to kind of feel good about life. Because that's quite a, a kind of a paradigm of um, self-help and intervention. And so this group over here, the folks with average self-esteem, said all those phrases for two weeks. At the end of two weeks, what went on, do you reckon? Good, bad, worse, same the same. They were no different. Didn't make any difference. They were, they were the same. Then they got the crowd over here that had slightly lower self-esteem at the starting point. Two weeks, they got these phrases in their heads. They had to say every time, a few times a day, I'm a lovable person, I'm amazing. All these kind of self-help phrases. How were they after two weeks? Any guesses? Better? No, they weren't. They were actually worse. They felt worse about life. They were more depressed and they felt worse about things. Those that had slightly lower self-esteem. Because, this is how we put it, because basically those with low self-esteem felt worse after trying to big themselves up because they simply didn't believe their own propaganda. They didn't feel great about life anyway, and they had some self-esteem issues. And when they were telling themselves, you're great, you're amazing, you're fantastic, they just didn't believe their own words. They didn't believe their own propaganda, and it left them feeling worse at the end of the process. And he quotes in his research that that study has been repeated many, many times. They were internally validated. Their only source of validation was themselves anyway, and they who were feeling a bit flat, were saying to themselves, you're amazing. And they realized it wasn't true. It was a hollow, cyclical argument that was going nowhere. He goes on to say, the, the gospel calls us out of the search for self-fulfillment, and it orients us towards Jesus. So you don't just look at yourself to kind of get your sense of value, self-worth, purpose, and meaning. You have to look somewhere else. And the gospel calls us to look to Jesus, the word made flesh, and in the pursuit of his kingdom. It insists that when we make self-fulfillment and the pursuit of self-worth, the organizing principle of our lives, then we not only fall short of the glory of God, we also fall short of being fully human. 
Jesus speaks our identity to us, that we're holy, that we're saints, that we're sons, that we're daughters, and that's our identity in God's family. And that must become foundational for personal growth and the linchpin of personal transformation. I want to glance at a short video that links the idea of knowing who we are also with what we're called to do in our destiny. And that's what Paul does in this passage. Glance at this short video that tells it in a humorous way. Hello and welcome. Thanks for coming. There must be hundreds of you. Okay. The Bible says that we are citizens of heaven. So let's just pretend for one minute that's actually who we are. We're up in heaven. We're all hanging out, gathered together. Jesus walks in. Guys, hi. Thanks for being here. Uh, Me and God have had this kind of crazy idea, but we think it's a good one. Uh, We've hired about a thousand bodies. You're all going to have one. Um, Some are going to be a little bit ugly. Um, Others might have eczema, uh, sickness, different things, uh, problems and ailments. Uh, But don't worry about it because we're literally talking 80 to 100 years. Some of you even less. Um, So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go on a mission together. I'm going to be with you. My Holy Spirit's going to be with you all the time. We're on a mission together to expand the kingdom of God, to be a blessing. Some of you are going to be uh, in business. Others of you are going to be doctors. You're going to pray while you're giving medicine. Others of you are going to just have the gift of hospitality. Your job is to be a blessing and help expand the kingdom of God. We're on this mission together and I'm with you all the time. The main thing to remember is that I'm going to be with you. Okay, read the word, pray, stay in communication with me because the enemy is going to be coming at you hard all the time. He's going to be shooting fiery darts at you, telling you that you're not worthwhile, telling you you've got no friends, telling you you're not good enough, telling you that I'm distant, but I'm not distant, I'm close. So persevere and let's do this thing together. So are you guys ready for it? I know I'm a little bit impulsive up here in heaven, but anyway, three, two, one, boom. And you're born as a baby, and you can communicate with the Lord, remember who you are. Amen. <laughs> it's fun, isn't it? That Paul is saying, hey, listen, remember who you are. If you get who you are, then it makes a big difference with knowing your purpose in the world. He goes on in verse 9 to say this, For this reason, since the day we heard it, we've not ceased praying for you and asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you might lead lives worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him as you bear fruit in every good work and as you grow in the knowledge of God. Hey, listen, when we get to know who we are, we get to walk in God's purpose, realizing that God's got a plan for us. We're in his family. He's our father, and he's got things he wants us to be and things he wants us to do. Rick Warren wrote his book, The Purpose Driven Life, because he wanted to help people discover what God had created them to be and to do. Do you know there's lots of ways to work out what to do with our lives? We can just rustle up good plans. We can think about following your heart, doing what you know, makes you feel happy. I want to just give you a quote from a chap called a guy called uh, Martin Seligman. And Martin Seligman is an American psychologist. He's not just a lightweight. This guy's a heavyweight. This guy, about 10 years ago, was the president of the American Psychological Association. He spent the last 25, 30 years looking at the questions of happiness, purpose, character, how those things relate. That's been his area of research. And he came up with this interesting reflection. And he's, I don't think he's a believer, but basically a lot of his findings echo what we're seeing right right here in this passage. And he said, the good life is a life wrapped up in successfully using your signature strengths, but the meaningful life has one additional feature. You use your strengths in the service of something larger than you are. Idea being that if you take three phrases for a minute, say purpose, say purpose, character, happiness. Okay, say purpose, character, happiness. 
Right, let's think about those three things for a minute. Okay, if, if this guy with his research is just putting language to what the Bible shows here, when you take happiness and say, I'm going to make that top of the list, my primary purpose is about the pursuit of happiness, then the casualty is character. His research would say that when you say, I just want to be happy, when I do the things that make me happy, I follow my heart, you know, the theology according to Disney, just follow your heart, follow your dreams. If that's your way of approaching life, and you make happiness the primary goal, that's your primary purpose, then it actually is ever-elusive. It's always out of reach because one experience fixes it for a while, but then you have to go to the next experience. And you end up um, seeing your relationships as a way to get something, to get your happiness goal met, and then you end up being selfish, self-absorbed, and you use people. That's actually kind of the research shows that. If that's the primary goal, pursuit of happiness is my primary purpose, then the casualty is character because you become self-absorbed. Interestingly, he said this, that when you flip it around and when you actually say, do you know what, I'm recognizing that I've got a purpose that extends beyond me. It's a cause to live for. It's something that's beyond me and it's not just about me and my personal needs. And I recognize I've got a bigger place in the world. Then things like um, self-sacrifice and endurance and courage have a context. So in other words, if I've got a purpose that is beyond me, recognizing that my life is not just about me, but it's got a bigger storyline to fit into, then character has a place to grow and blossom because endurance, character, self-sacrifice, commitment, loyalty, they, they've got a reason to blossom and flourish. And the interesting thing, what was the third phrase we talked about? If we've got purpose, character, what was the last one? Happiness. Happiness actually grows far more when there's purpose and character because it's got a context in which to blossom. Isn't that interesting? Don't you find that fascinating? That actually, here's a guy who spent 30 years researching this and saying, when you've got a sense of a larger purpose that you're living for, then character blossoms in context, and the fruit is happiness grows. Well, that's what, basically, the Apostle Paul's trying to say. Listen, you're caught up in a bigger story. It's a God story. Your sons and daughters in his family, your saints, and you're called to live, not just for yourself, but to live with the will of God in mind. You're meant to live with... Not just my little choices and my little happy world, but actually how does my life fit into a bigger picture, into a bigger story of what God is calling me to do and how he's extending his kingdom in planet Earth. And when we get that bigger context, it gives a basis for us growing in our character and following Christ. But also joy is the byproduct and fruit. I find that a fascinating thing when we see the biblical story and wisdom being recognized in secular research. So we understand in this passage here, uh, we see, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Most of God's will for us is found in God's word. That's where we find God's will. It's just his truth for every part of our lives. But also, it says in the Bible that we're created in God's, um, we're God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Verse 10 has got three little phrases in there that I want to finish up with that just speak about some of the ways that we can work out God's will for every one of us. If we understand we're sons and daughters and we're saints, it says this, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Three things that we're going to look at briefly. Basically, walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, bearing fruit in good works and growing in our knowledge of God. Let's look at the first one, walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. Do you know, it's not enough to know God's will in your head or even read it in the Bible. We've actually got to walk it out. We've actually got to take steps, little steps every day to live out our faith, to make a choice to put Jesus first. You know, we don't jump into marital health or financial health or spiritual health. I might jump 10 feet, but I can walk 10 miles. We walk 
step by step into God's purposes. Step by step, decision by decision, surrender by surrender. That's how we live out the will of God. Maybe you need to think today, what's the next step in God's will for me? What's the next step I can take to grow in my faith? Maybe it's getting involved in a small group. Maybe it's joining a team and serving other people. Maybe it's not being so self-absorbed, but laying down my life to serve other people. Maybe it's trusting him with my money and starting to give. There are loads of different ways that we can take steps, but we're told to walk in a manner that's worthy of the Lord. Not some pole vault, not some high jump, simple steps, but consistent ones that see God's will worked out in our lives. Next thing we see is bearing fruit in every good work. So that you may lead lives worthy of the Lord and pleasing to him as you are bearing fruit in every good work. Every good work. I love that. That covers a lot, doesn't it? Whether you're a barista serving up a coffee, whether you're a student studying, whether you're a doctor, whether you're you know, a mechanic fixing a car. My studies and my hobbies, my walk and my work with God, my neighboring and my parenting, it covers the whole thing. Bearing fruit in every good work. I saw this great list that a friend of mine showed me. He's an organizational consultant. And he said, you know, sometimes people get hung up about their level of gifting, whether you feel gifted or talented. So those things are good. It's nice to be gifted and talented. But a lot of things don't actually require that much talent or gifting. Here is a list of 10 things that require zero talent. I like this list because I can be on it. Here are ten. <laughs> Look at that. Being on time, work ethic, effort, positive body language, attitude, passion, being coachable, doing extra, being prepared. Do you know what? You might not feel very gifted in life, but even if you just started with that list, I think that's a very practical way of saying I can bear fruit in every good work. If I'm in college, at my workplace, I can exemplify some of those attitudes and some of those characteristics. Two of our students were working in the summer, and they rocked up to a summer job for three weeks. And when they started on the first day, within 24 hours, they were just there on time, good attitude. They weren't always on their phones. When the boss said, can you do something? They said, yep, we're totally with it, got on it, just did what they were asked, anticipated what else needs to be done, helped. And within 24 hours, the boss said, you guys have got a different attitude. If there's any overtime, you get the first choice of any overtime for the next three weeks. And they got all the overtime, so they worked eight-hour days. They got another four hours extra. Those four hours extra overtime were, t- were pay and a half. They earned a packet in three weeks. And they said, all we did was we just did some of that. We just saw that this is a moment to bear fruit in every good work. We just wanted our simple choices to make a difference. And the Lord saw that and blessed them. I think that's a great little story. So we can bear fruit in every good work. And the last thing is that we grow in the knowledge of God. That's what it says in this passage. Working out what does it mean to live God's will every day. Walking in a way worthy of him, simple steps, bearing fruit in every good work, and growing in the knowledge of God. Anybody enjoy doing those things like um, personality tests, like Myers-Briggs or you know, Strengths Finders? You, you, know, you like kind of getting... Has anybody done that stuff where you get a bit of insight? It's fun, isn't it, when you get some insight into yourself. And we, we probably have got a massive capacity to be obsessed with ourselves. And I like it. I like it when I understand Enneagram and Strengths Finder. And they're really interesting. But sometimes the solution to us really growing is not knowing ourselves better. It's knowing God better. That's what Paul is saying. Listen, I want you to grow in the knowledge of God. It's good that you've got some insight. It's good that you get how you work and how you tick. But really, the key to your growth, the key to you knowing who you are and knowing the will of God is to get into that place where you grow in the knowledge of God. Doing some things that cultivate your friendship with him. 
do you know, I know that this church is a wonderful church, and Steve and the preaching team here rustle up good meals on a Sunday. They do all their best to serve up a good spiritual diet, but most of our growth is through self-service. It's through rustling up meals on our own at home, spiritually, having to kind of feed ourselves in the Word of God, connecting with Him in prayer and worship. That's how we really feed ourselves and grow. So this passage speaks about a few things. It says that your identity is greater than some self-generated identity. We're saints, we're in Christ, we're sons and daughters, we're citizens in heaven. And that God's will for us is greater than some self-generated plan. If we think about purpose, happiness, and what was the last one? Character. There's a context to living God's purpose. That's how our character blossoms, and the joy is a byproduct. And the last thing is that God's power is greater in you than any of your self-effort. Verse 11, that you may be made strong with all the strength that comes from his glorious power, and that you may be prepared to endure everything with patience, giving thanks to the Father. Amen. Let's just pray. Father, thank you for your word, and we pray that you would help us understand and agree with you that we're sons, we're daughters, we're holy ones, and that we would step into our purpose to love you, to live for you, to walk out our faith and to make a difference in the things you've called us to do, both in this space and in our work. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.